The thing about meditating is we can start before everybody came, comes in and sits down. You can start, you know. I was thinking about that this morning, that about, you know, first of all, we can start without, you know, we don't need to be, all the team does not need to be lined up. We could start without everybody sitting down. And I was, I was also thinking about the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, well, how will I, I'll start it this way. A few years ago, I went to hear the uh, Dalai Lama do a week of teaching. So it's a big deal to sign up to go to Washington, D.C., or Seattle or L.A. or wherever His Holiness is teaching, and then to buy the tickets to go, to show up every day and go, go, get a hotel room. And uh, so I was coming back from a teaching um, maybe five years ago whenever we were there. Uh, and when I came back, my colleague uh, Sally Armstrong, on greeting me, she said, oh, I, you know, I heard you went to Washington. Did His Holiness say anything new? So I hope you're laughing for the right reason because I thought about it a little bit and I said, no, matter of fact, His Holiness did not say anything new. He said the same thing that he always said. Um, but the, it, And I was thinking about it this morning about the fact that there are some people here who've never been to Spirit Rock. There are probably some people who have never done a day of mindfulness or never even heard of mindfulness instruction. But the instructions are always the same. They don't get harder. You know, it's not like you take French 1 and 2 and then you take French 3. There is no mindfulness of breathing 3 with more <laughs> elaborate instructions. That This is the instruction. Stay awake and pay attention. That's the instruction. Uh, and really notice what's happening. Not only what notice what's happening... But notice what's true about what's happening, which is really the important part. You sit and you, you notice, I breathe in, I breathe out, I breathe in, I breathe out, breathe in, and breath out. And that's it. You probably calm down a little bit because you clear out the extraneous thoughts aren't there so much. So you don't have so many extra thoughts. But it's, um, I remember one of my... Uh, one of my teachers, actually, early on, I was doing a lot of retreat practice, and it was really hard for me to learn how to uh, really focus my attention, say, for instance, on the breathing. It's not only breathing that people pay attention to. It's pay attention, and pay attention to breath, if that's comfortable for you, or pay attention to the sensations in your body, if that's comfortable for you, or pay attention to your thoughts, which is really what we're going to pay attention to this afternoon, or pay attention to sounds in the room. The idea is to pay attention. And a lot of people choose breath because we're all breathing, and it's, it's uh, uh, universally in different spiritual paths, people say, let's do a breath meditation. But it isn't anything, it's not magic. It works a little bit on the principle of, of just... Um, uh, uh, physiology, if you think about one thing and you keep your attention on that one thing, you tend to relax in your musculature. But that's not the point of meditation, is not to be the ra relaxed. The point is to be awake. And really the point is to be awake about what's true, what's going on for everybody, and what's going on for us. And really, if I think back about... Um, 
my friend's summary of practice yesterday, uh, which was, the only thing that upsets me is my mind, which I really, really appreciate so much, because then you get to see, if you pay attention, how you're going along okay, and then your mind makes a story and causes you to worry about, or, and then you are stuck worrying about it until you get to say, that's my mind making a story. Let's not do that again. If I, if I follow that and I pay attention to it, I'll just get more and more stuck in that story. It's like our man, Mr. Miller, this morning says, uh, angry feeling is arising in me. Hmm. One possibility is an angry feeling is arising in me. I'll just relax and pay attention to it and notice actually what caused it and notice a, re- a responsible response to it. But let me not get carried away by it and blinded by the carried away. Really, there's all these parameters, different ways of saying, I would like to keep my mind clear, which means noticing when some disturbing emotion arises, whatever it is, I'd like to keep it clear enough to keep my heart open because we really lose the capacity to make wise choices when we get carried away. Even when the mind gets carried away with happy feelings, every once in a while you read things about uh, soccer fans who get so excited about the outcome of a game and so carried away with celebrating that a piece of the stadium falls down. Then wait a minute, that was not... Well, maybe they should build a stadium, but, but we could really get carried away with stuff or demonstrations that get carried away. One of the really extraordinarily, uh, for me anyway, touching and important moments in the Arab Spring movement of a few years ago that we really had so much hope in, and which I still have hope, could in some way represent itself, was the fact that those large, large groups of people came together in a public space with a really firm intention, decisive in spirit, and peaceful in demeanor. That was, that was really what was important about it. People were really intent on making an important change in their social structure, but doing it in a way that really supported the change rather than caused upset to it. I was really so moved by that. I, I thought uh, the uh, the image I took away from it, and it didn't work out as well and as thoroughly as we hoped. But we do. I do hope that all the 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 coming togethers of people to make a statement that are happening more and more. I hope they make a difference. I hope they actually bring about gun control or consciousness about uh, improper use of force by the police, or all the consciousnesses that we need to have happen. And I, I feel like this is a time in, uh, in the history of the world where it really could turn around. It used to be that so much time had to go by between an idea getting from one place to another. When the Buddha taught... 2,500 years ago in northern India, and the stories about him teaching uh, monks 
and I suppose nuns, and nuns as well, although I'm not sure that they were included in his very famous teaching when he was sending out monks that he had trained. And he said to them, uh, go forth, O monks, and teach this important teaching in the idiom of the people. And I thought that was, first of all, I, I love the thinking of go forth, O monks, and I know that the teaching spread, uh, first of all, throughout Asia and into China and up to Mongolia and Tibet and uh, Korea and uh, and ultimately across the 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 the, the sea to uh, Japan, and I had in my mind an image of uh, go forth, oh monks, kind of like um, on a video game or something with little monks walking along. <laughs> go forth, oh monks, and see little trails of monks going here and there and there, and walking over mountains and those way of. Like Pac-Man, little walk, walking along, little monks here and there and there and there, and then in a boat going across the the China Sea. And it took a thousand years for uh, to pass for presumably Bodhidharma, presumably the person who brought the Dharma to Japan, to bring it from India to Japan. And now we see it instantly on TV with uh, the the way that Internet covers the whole world. And I think that's so exciting. I think the, the fact that um, 1.8 or 1.4 billion people are on Facebook, could that be true? I think so. So I think to myself, Mark Zuckerberg could send out a tweet that would be the ultimate tweet, like um, keeping quiet... Neruda's poem that we read this morning. Suppose somebody really famous with a tremendous platform sent out the ultimate tweet that said, listen, everybody, we have got to be friends with each other and stop carrying on the way we are because we're really killing each other and ourselves and the planet, and we haven't got that all much time. So let's start now. Ready, set, go. We could do that. That tweet could go around the world. In five minutes, everybody could know it. If the most important... Sometimes I think, well, maybe Pope Francis, together with the Dalai Lama, together with Mark Zuckerberg, maybe, yeah. <laughs> should send the tweet. Or somebody else who would command a lot of, a lot of attention. But, uh, but let's stop. You know, let's just stop and think it over. And be nicer to each other and to ourselves. Really, may I be free of enmity and danger. One of the things that... Uh, so we're talking about that there is a point of practice is to really not just to calm down, not to relax, but actually to see how we create the, the suffering in our mind by the stories we tell. And to see without telling stories about it. I mean, when we talked earlier this morning, you see about, you know, uh-oh, I'm having angina. So now I take the nitroglycerin. You don't have to have a story about it. You just do it. And here comes a car careening. You jump out of this. And here we are, a civilization on the brink of killing itself and the planet. Let's just stop. Let's stop. And what will cause everybody to do it at one time? 
So there are the two answers, that recognizing one's own habits of mind. Oh, I was going to say that you could make your, you could say, I'm doing a practice of really being with my breath over and over and over again. I feel very relaxed. But really what the Buddha taught is that it's more than feeling relaxed. Once you feel relaxed, you say, okay, now what do you know? And the three things that we absolutely can know is that everything passes, that things have causes. Everything has a cause. The fact that we're, uh, any of us here in this room, is such a complex karma that we hear. Not that the karma in the sense that we were all destined to be here on this day. Maybe you decided this morning, just suddenly on the spur of the moment, I'll go. Then you're, then you're here on this day. So your sudden impulse was part of the karma. The fact that I'm here has to do, that part of my karma in being here has to do with Marco Polo opening a trade route to the Orient and uh, changing the economic climate in Western Europe so that large numbers of people needed to move in order to be safer or more comfortable or in order to be wanted and uh, caused over a period of 20 years for my four grandparents to come from four different places in Eastern Europe and end in New York and meet each other and decide to marry each other and have uh, offspring who 25 years later happened to live around the corner from each other and married each other and had one daughter. And so far I haven't been in a in any major accident or had a major illness that ended my life. So, And millions of things happened to me in the meantime. Think of all the accidents that you come upon on the highway that you arrive two minutes after it happened or two minutes before it happened and you're you're safe from it. Think of all the accidents we avoided and all the illnesses that didn't happen and all the tsunamis that we weren't at. And when you think about it, there's a my one of my father's most favorite blessings. My parents were not pious people, but they were learned enough to know blessings and the blessing that was my father's favorite blessing was a blessing that uh, gives thanks for having made it till today. You would say that blessing on your birthday or on New Year's Day. Uh, you'd say, I'm really, I'm really amazed and glad for the... Well, my, it's got a formula where you have thanks to something, but it's really a formula of thanksgiving. My father, who was not a believer in outside causes would probably have been thinking, I'm really grateful that all the things that could have happened that would have ended my life didn't happen, and I made it to now. And it's actually, it became, when I was, when I was an adolescent, I began to really think about, when I was a teenager, uh, I began to get the gist of that. Probably the beginning of my melancholia about really how vulnerable we all are. Uh, Maybe it has something to do with my fretting genes. But it's a miracle that I'm here or that all of you are here, really. Everything that didn't happen so that it would be otherwise didn't happen. And here we are. And it's a great thing to think about. You think, wow. Uh, Blanche Hartman, who was abbot of Zen Center in San Francisco for a long time, 
and is now an old woman and in a nursing home and uh, infirm and recuperating from the last uh, setback that she had. You can find a picture of her and her essay in online in uh, the Lion's Roar website, which is a new website. The Shambhala Sun has become Lion's Roar as of today. So if you look up Lion's Roar and you look up Blanche Hartman, and you'll see a picture of Blanche in a nursing facility, um, lying back on her pillow. I was really very touched to see this, you know, have the camera. Actually talking about the last time, she said the last time that I was for a period of time hospitalized and then I got out, she said the first thing I realized when I was out in the street is I'm alive. You know, I'm alive. Look at this day. So here she is and lying in the uh, nursing home. And if you look at it, she's got, um, is it her cat or her dog? I think it's her dog is really lying on her, looking at her face. And Blanche is an old woman. She's older than I am. But talking about being able to realize in any moment, it's incredible to be alive. Look what we do. We locomote, we go from here to there, we create, we draw, we paint, we bake, we talk, we talk several languages. It's amazing to be a person. Uh, (laughs) My grandfather, the same one I quoted before, about what are you going to do that's life, used to say, it's really hard to be a person. And I think what he meant by that is it's really hard to be a stalwart person who does life and has things happen to them and keeps on, which is really the deepest dharma you can think about. If you look around, you think everybody in this room not only made it physically so that their body is alive today, but they made it because somewhere or another their mind is alive and they felt like once again thinking how am I going to lift it up a little bit and start this year confidently deciding to move on that's the last line of the of the buddha's life move on with confidence into the future what what's the alternative <laughs> it doesn't make sense we might as well i sometimes tell people there's a story about the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment sitting down under that tree and uh, uh, really setting up a shield, a protective shield, again, like the Buddha with the elephant in that story, a protective shield of goodwill around him. And in the illustrations of it, you can see here come uh, all kinds of forces on horseback. So it's illustrated that the forces of temperament like anger and envy and uh, revenge are galloping in over here and the forces of erotic confusion are galloping in over here. So whatever isn't going to catch him, this isn't going to arouse him to anger, is going to really seduce him, beguile him with lust. Do you ever think about the song Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered? You know, that's about it, that we get uh, bewitched, by, beguiled by something, we get bothered by something else, and we get bewildered by the fact that those have stirred up these difficult thoughts in our mind, feelings in our mind. So uh, universally everybody knows these are the things that are the, uh, the disturbers of tranquility in one's own mind. 
But he sits down and he says, and he's radiating his goodwill. And here come these forces on horseback. And uh, presumably he says, I see your forces, Mara. Mara's a disturber of minds, trying to get in the way of his own enlightenment. I see your forces, your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. I have a right to be here. And he sa- and it says in the descriptions that he puts his fingers down on the ground and says, I have a right to be here. And I love that, you know. And for years, I, even before I copped to it and told people about it, I would when I was sitting and meditating and I was just annoyed with something. I couldn't get out of my mind, couldn't get out of my mind. And finally, I'd put my hand down on the, on the ground like that. And I'd say, I have a right to be here. And in that original story, he says, I have a right to be here. I'm not getting up until I'm enlightened. So I told that to groups of people. I do that. And then they laugh like, ha-ha, you really think that you're going to get enlightened? I think to myself, actually, I actually don't. Maybe I don't, but I'm not sure what enlightened is. But why would I not do that? No one's going to give me demerits for doing that. No one's going to say, how presumptuous of you. First of all, how do they know? And second of all, it's good for you to think you could do something. Suppose you took up a musical instrument and you say, well, I'm going to practice the violin. Maybe I'll be crummy at it, maybe not. But you start to practice because you think you're going to be good at it. And then you try really hard. Whatever you're going to do, maybe I'll learn French. Maybe I'll be good, maybe not. No, that's not at all good for you. So I'm going to really learn French. I'm going to read... What would we read? Uh, Chanson de Roland or something in French, in the original. Whatever it is, but to say, why not do it? That, I think, is the wise intention. Do we want to meditate now? Probably. I'm trying to portion out the afternoon. We don't have enough time. That's the problem. We don't have enough time. To what? We're not going to get enlightened today. Anyway. <laughs> I'm having a conversation with myself. So, well, because I wanted to teach that, but maybe we'll sit a little bit. Maybe we'll sit a little bit. Oh, we definitely will sit a little bit. Let's do this. Let's do the beginning of instructions for metta meditation. And we'll do and we'll sit with that for maybe ten minutes. And then we'll continue on. The word metta means friendliness. And I'm hopeful that Sometime I, d- I don't think we'll actually change it archivally because people have always called it metta and it got translated into English as loving kindness because it was a hundred years ago in its Victorian English and its prayer book English. But we don't often say loving kindness uh, in our daily speech and it actually means friendliness. It makes more sense to say friendliness. 
So think of it as friendliness practice. It's like, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I disarm myself? May I meet it as a friend? But we'll take it a step further. How how about we take it to the most friendly thing I can do for myself is wish myself well because I'm doing the best I can. I couldn't be better. That's all of us. That's true. However we're doing, it is the best we can. It's the only thing we can, given every single thing that's happened to us in our life. It's tremendous, because it gets everybody, gives everybody a pass, really. But just think about yourself. Think about we would, what we share is we would all like to feel at ease. We'd all like to feel happy. We'd all like to feel strong. We would all like our lives to be smooth, not have problems. Stay balanced. So we can say, um, we can do a meditation that blesses ourselves. So I'll say four phrases and think them to yourself. I'll say it and I'll assume that I'll wait so you can think it to yourself. And not only think it, try to feel it. And then I'll say another phrase. There, I'll probably do four. We'll see, I think. May I feel safe. <coughs> May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I feel peaceful. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I feel peaceful. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I feel peaceful. Now do it for yourself. Maybe in that rhythm, maybe those words, safe and happy and strong and peaceful. Maybe add other words. Say blessings for yourself. Really the only important thing is to hold yourself in love and wish yourself well 
and say nice things to yourself without any hesitation. (coughs) So do that. If you get tired of saying, then you can rest and feel how good it feels to say nice things to yourself and then pick it up again and say again, may I? We do that for five minutes. You know, as you continue to sit now, if you're uh, sleepy, open your eyes. But see if you can remember to keep some form of blessing happening. What we'll do now is we'll move the blessing from oneself to think about somebody who you love tremendously. Your love really, really fill up your whole mind. Sometimes the instruction is pick somebody that you love absolutely without reservations, no matter what. So, But keep in mind, that could include people who get on your nerves. Sometimes. People that you really, really, really love. And feel how it feels to think for them. You can imagine them. Think about who it is. Imagine them sitting in front of you or next to you and say... To the, as if you were saying out loud, may you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you live peacefully. Think of somebody else that you love really a lot. And think for them, may you feel safe. Imagine you're saying this to them. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you feel peaceful. Think of somebody else. You can imagine inviting all these people into your mind. There is infinite room in your mind, so you can invite in lots of people. Think of somebody who's not a relative of yours, if you had relatives. Or think of someone who is a relative, if you hadn't picked a relative. And think the same formula. May you feel safe. 
May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you feel peaceful. Pick somebody else. Pick a friend or a colleague or a, someone you work with. And just as soon as you think of them, their image pops into your mind. And wish for them, really, with your whole heart. Wherever you are, may you feel safe. May you feel happy. May you feel strong. May you feel peaceful. I'll wait two minutes while you can invite some more individuals into your mind. Can invite in two at a time if you want, or groups of people. Wish them well. And then realize for a moment that you've invited all these people into your mind and you're sitting in the middle of all that group of people that you're invited in. So we can begin to say, may we, all of us, may we feel safe. May we feel happy. May we feel strong. May we live with ease. Think about um, the image of uh, uh, purposely pushing the loving kindness out of your personal sphere into a bigger sphere. So imagine everybody out here in West Marin could feel the force of your wishing. So wish for everyone. The people in retreat up the hill, 
the people around facilitating these retreats, the people organizing the cars, getting in and out, the horses near the road, the cows in the field next to that. May everything feel safe. May everything feel peaceful. May all beings be at ease. Think about all the beings in the whole world. It's just pushing your imagination walls out a little bit further as if they go all the way around this whole planet, around people who are getting up and people who are going to sleep and people who are already in tomorrow. people in Hawaii who are catching up with today. May all beings everywhere feel at ease. Mostly feel how you feel being in the middle of a whole universe of people that you're wishing well towards. The mind full of friendliness. Sometimes people at this point in their friendliness practice experiment with bringing to mind someone, somewhere, near or far, who, uh, when that person or persons comes to mind, usually is met with a, a reaction of negativity in the mind. And they uh, experiment with inviting them in and wishing them well. You don't have to do that. You can if you want to, though. It's an experiment. Sometimes it's irrelevant to stop with only people that we like. Why not everybody? just a wish. Really the principal beneficiary of being able to wish well to all beings is oneself because it keeps one's own heart in a relaxed way 
and one's own mind free of enemies. May all beings be peaceful and at ease. In the spirit of wishing oneself well, Brahmani will come and lead us in uh, just a short kindness to our body so that we're comfortable as we can be for the last hour of our being together. As you once again find the seat, your seat, just gently grounded and long. And just take a few long breaths to feel back into this precious body as a kindness. And then just take your hands and rub them together. And as you do that, breathe right into your hands. It's as if you're breathing love and well-wishing right there. And then gently release them. You might even feel a little tingling or warmth between them. huh? And then turn your hands up towards your face. Don't let them touch quite yet. Again, as a way of receiving, receiving your own love and kindness and well-wishing. And then let the fingers rest on right over your eyes and your forehead and your cheeks. Mm. And then just begin to wipe the forehead off and around the eyes. Just a little self-massage. And you know, you live in that body, so if there's a little spot that feels a little tender, stay for a moment. You can go around the eye sockets, into the temples. And while you're doing this, you can let the phrases be there for you, right? May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May my body feel at ease, healthy and strong. May I know peace. And then gradually just taking your hands around to the back of the neck and massaging either side of the neck. Kind of going from one side to the other. And then you might like to take your thumbs right along the base of the skull. It's called that little ridge there. It's called the occipital ridge. 
And then just let the fingers trace a little bit. And again, if you get a little sweet spot, breathe there, just like any other edge. Wish yourself well. You know, every moment is an opportunity to feel what's here, see where you are holding, relax what we can. Mm. Mm. Then gently release your hands, and as you inhale, stretch them up. And as you exhale, cross your right elbow over. It doesn't matter. Just cross your elbows. <laughs> and then just give yourselves a good hug, right? Mm. But then really walk it. So you get these elbows as much as you can over each other. And then take your hands and cross them or hold the thumb or maybe you're out like that. And then as you inhale, just press the elbows away and then draw them back. Do that again. Inhale, stretching it away. And take it back. And this time as you inhale, reach up. You might feel a little sweet sensation. This is another way of just loving yourself, right? And down. Do it again. Inhaling up. And exhaling down. Do it one more time. And down. And then when you're there, just pause for a moment and take three long breaths, nice and steady. Hmm. And then gently release and again sweep them up. And this time take one hand on your belly and one on your heart. And just feel your own well-wishing. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. And may I know peace. Gently release the hands. Again, just take a moment and check in. Notice what's happening now. How do you feel in this body, mind, and heart? There's a folklore about loving-kindness practice, about metta practice that's, um, that goes like this. It's actually meant to be a, um, a practice that uh, practitioners would say to each uh, themselves and learn for themselves and repeat to themselves over and over again to remind themselves of the benefit of practicing um, friendliness meditation which is really wishing without any hesitation well to all beings. The particular, the, that, that, the particular sutra that the practice comes from is called the Metta Sutta, and it means the Metta Sutta. It's translated sometimes as the Loving Kindness Sutta, but it's also translated as um, the Buddha's teaching on impartial kindness. And I think it's really the impartial friendliness that to whomever. But uh, it's been traditional. One of the things that I did in learning it was my teacher said, uh, 
practice by saying these, uh, learning these 11 benefits of being a practitioner. These are the benefits. People that practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. <laughs> Angels will protect them. Angel poisons and weapons will, and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Who would not send away for a bottle of that <laughs> if they advertised it on one of the cable channels? 1995, and if you send now, you get an extra one, you just pay shipping and handling. It does all those things for you. I'll tell them to you again, and you see if which one you'd like. Suppose you could only have one of those benefits. People who practice metta, you pick out yours that you like. Uh, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. Did you pick out yours? You know which one you have? Yeah? Okay, I'm going to say it again. You put up your hand for your one. But no changing. Okay? No changing. You're on your honor not to change. Okay? There we go. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams, People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So somebody picked everything. I mean... I mean, everybody, every, every, so each of those things had somebody who wanted them. Who would not want them? That's what we all want for ourselves. So it's fantastic to say, after I just said that my friend Joseph got bitten by the dog, you know, poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you, but the dog bit him. But... You know what I think it means? I would not, you know, the ads on TV, it says, do not try this at home. You know, that this is a, this is a, these are professional drivers, do not try this at home. I think that the line, particularly about poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them, means nothing will harm them. Really nothing. And I don't think it means, it's the, it's the ultimate vaccine. I think it's the ultimate, um, Vaccine against um, bitterness of heart. That's what it's the uh, bitterosity. <laughs> bitterosity is a is a term that I learned from Adam Gopnik, who writes for the New Yorker, uh, who made it up. Actually, it's his daughter Olivia that made it up. She had um, uh, invisible companions that she reported to to her family. And one night, she was telling about her companions, and they asked, well, what about so-and-so? And she said, oh, he's not here anymore. He died. And she was five or six, so parents are concerned. What's Olivia thinking about? So 
So what did he die of? And she said, he died of bitterosity. <laughs> and I think about being embittered. We probably, many of us know people who spent their lives embittered. And I really would like to live, I want, I want to be alive as long as I live, really. That's what I want to be able to do. Uh, my next-door neighbor, years ago, uh, died of uh, uh, some disease, uh, some cancer that wasn't able to be cured. And uh, I went to visit him in, when he was really confined to his bed. And Jesse was, um, Jesse was a physician, so he had uh, morphine that uh, right around his bed and the means to inject himself to control his pain. And he said, you know, and he knew, he certainly knew he was dying, but he said, you know, every once in a while the pain gets terrible, and then I think, you know, I could end the whole thing right now, and I have the means to do it. He said, but I never get around to doing it. He said, because every time I start to think, maybe today's the day, I think to myself, I have a nephew in Atlanta who has just started up a relationship with a woman and he thinks this is going to work. And I have some really good ideas for him I'd like to talk with him about. So, And then maybe today, this morning, I was thinking about it again. But I think my niece in Los Angeles is opening a business and I have some advice that I could give her. So he said, I could never, you know, I, I can't get myself to do it because there's somebody who needs me. Um, I'm talking to my friend Tamara, uh, who died, um, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago now, five maybe, uh, and uh, when I, in Florida, so I would be calling her every day or so, and uh, she was at the end so weak that someone had to hold the phone for her. She was in a hospice where they were taking good care of her. And I remember we had a conversation where she said, this is so hard. And I said, yeah, I know, sweetheart, but not so long now. And you're doing great, and it's all going to soon end. And she said, no, but it's really hard. But she said, oh, wait a minute. The nurses are just now fixing my blankets around my legs. And I thank you so much. I hear her thanking everybody. She said, and then she's saying to me on the phone, the nurses here have been so kind. They're really wonderful. I'm so grateful. Thank you, thank you. And I thought to myself, good for her. She was alive till the last minute. Oh, I remember... uh, I was shopping with my daughter. It was my daughter's birthday, my adult daughter's birthday. And we were shopping. And my friend Tamara was a fantastic dresser. She she was a Dharma teacher. She was one of the founders of New York Insight. And she was a really stylish dresser <laughs> and an inveterate shopper, And uh, uh, as her mother before her had been. And, we, and my daughter and I were shopping in Lomans. And I thought, oh, you know, Tamara would love this. I'll just call her. And uh, this was before the very end, but Tamara was quite sick by this time. And uh, so I called from the dressing room in Lomans. I said, guess where I'm calling you from? And she said, I don't know. So I said, well, uh, I'll give you a hint. I'm with Liz, and it's her birthday. She said, you're shopping. <laughs> I, I said, I am shopping. She, she said, you're in Lomans. Uh, I said, I am in Lomans. And she said, well, what's happening? And I said, well, Liz is trying on this and that. And she said, what is it? I said, I think it's a Masoni sweater. A Masoni sweater? Don't tell her to miss that Masoni. By all means, buy the, put Liz on the phone. <laughs> so I put Liz on the phone. And if you've been in the 
dressing room in Lomans, you know, they're public dressing rooms. So you don't have your private room. You're standing there in your underwear with all other people standing around trying on. And in the middle of these other people standing around trying on, here's Liz, looking in the mirror and talking to Tamara on the cell phone. And I'm hearing Tamara's excited, oh, I'm a Sony, and now the skirt is, well, be sure to get that. And I, uh, and it was a really, it was a lovely experience. And I called Tamara the next day to thank her for being able to so wholeheartedly put herself into that experience. Is Liz, she's out on her birthday, she's shopping for clothing, Tamara's dying. I said, you know, it was really splendid of you to enter into that experience so wholeheartedly. And she said, no, she said, I was going to thank you for phoning me up. She said, it was such an uplift to be out of myself and into that experience. She said, you gave me the opportunity to be excited about her. And did she get that sweater? Did she get the Masoni? You know, that she actually knew not only to wish well to other people, but to rejoice in other people's well-being and to use that that enthusiasm. If you can imagine it, I always see it as uh, somehow spatial, uh, geometric, that we could sink into ourselves and just die of bitterosity or we could come out of ourselves and attach ourselves to uh, lifelines into the world. My nephew in Atlanta who has a new relationship and my niece in Los Angeles starting a business and my young friend in, uh, in Lomans who's buying a Masoni sweater, that those are lifelines that you can get out of yourself and use somebody else's life to keep you alive in the best possible way. Really, to 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 learn that the 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 most reliable refuge that we have is not that our lives should go well. Our lives will go like they go, and who knows, you know. And so much is random. And but the only thing that we, that I, I think the most reliable refuge is one's own benevolent heart and the ability to engage it, and to know that engaging it saves your own life that it's not a favor to other people to wish them well. It's a favor to yourself to wish other people well. So maybe as we were doing that, you think to yourself, when we got to that point about maybe you want to bring into your mind somebody who, ah, uh, you don't have the best feeling. Did you do it? Bring somebody into your mind? Not so bad. Huh? So good. So good, you know. Because you feel it's it's like the mind does a little calculus, and it's well, the heck, you know. I could think a good thought, you know. So it's free, actually. In terms of bitterosity, it uh, it does much more for. Who knows if it does something good for another person if I wish them well? Somebody who offends me because of their political views or because of what they do in the world or whatever. But by wishing them well, I am avoiding the the experience of polluting my own mind with a story about why I don't like them. You know, that, uh, I mean, I can I can mull over, not that person, because after all, da, 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 the only person who's getting hurt in that moment is me. So I'm, like, polluting my own mind with bad thoughts. Nobody knows. <laughs> One of my early Dharma teachers said, thank goodness, we do not have... Um, what do you uh, uh, 
public address systems in our brains. So nobody in the, we can all think whatever thought we want to here, and nobody knows about it. If you thought something, not even even a, a mean thought, sometimes we think an ignoble thought. Anybody here ever thinks ignoble thoughts? <laughs> so, but nobody knows you thought it. Even you know, even you know you think it. And I think, oh, look what I just thought. But I didn't just thought it. I, you know, it happened. You know, there isn't an I who said, mm, now I'll just think an ignoble thought. You know, it just happened. It's karmically determined by everything that ever happened in your life. Really, it's true. Whatever anybody does is karmically determined. It doesn't mean they didn't have that. How the life that flowed through them was conducted did not have anything to do with it. That it's you know who knows how karma. There are a lot of karma that we can figure out if if I believe in karma. Uh, I believe that if I am nasty and not nice to everybody that uh, I won't have any friends and people won't be nice to me. But that's not like brilliant figuring out. I mean, that's like you could figure that out. (laughs) You could figure that out. It's really karma. The word karma doesn't mean just desserts. It means things happen. The word karma actually means action. And that your actions have fruits, as does everybody's actions. If I'm nice to a lot of people and I'm friendly and pleasant, probably a lot of people want to hang out with me. But that you know that's not that's not rocket science. That's true for everybody. So bitterosity is an unfortunate is an unfortunate situation for both the for both on both sides because bitterosity doesn't bring people towards you much unless you're fortunate enough to have people who are around you who will understand that you're in pain and it also hurts your own mind and we often learn it from people maybe maybe it's a familial trait but I think of that line about poisons and weapons and fire won't harm you People say, well, that's not really true. Don't don't try it, but it really means that you're really invulnerable. Like, maybe maybe Tamara was the uh, person I really knew. Maureen, who said, uh, thank you very much, I have no complaints. I didn't know her personally. And Blanche is not a close friend of mine. I know her a little bit. But to be able to say, really, I, I, we could do this life. Everybody does a life. And everybody has to end it. Uh, I, I, I didn't, I don't know, we won't spend any time on this because I want to spend time on the Metta Sutta. But I've been carrying this around just with me recently because it, it was a, rep- I, I, I guess I read it somehow on the internet. CBS News, this was CBS News. It said, uh, the headline is, Moderate Coffee Drinking Associated with Lower Risk of Death. I thought about it. I said, you cannot have a lower risk of death. It's 100%, 100% risk of death for everybody, you know? So, I mean, but that's, I mean, honestly, I'm not making it up. Lower risk of death. 
It's a lower risk of death from neuromuscular diseases, really. And it's also supposed to be good for heart disease, to avoid it. <laughs> but, you know, who knows what. But to, 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 to be able to say that we're in this life for as long as we're in it, and we might as well do it connected. The two words that I've been thinking about a lot this, this, this last year... One of them has been impeccability. I've been thinking about that it's a nice word. Uh, not scrupulosity, but really, here we are in a new year saying, I'm really not going to make comparisons. They really aren't good. And uh, I really am going to try not to tell myself the same stories that I know will it will bring on my melancholy. I can see them coming and say, just don't go there. Make a soup. Do something else. Do something else. Think it over. I've been telling people that I have this new practice. And people wonder, what's the new practice? It says T-I-O. T-I-O. Could be T-O, which could be uncle. But T-I-O is thinking it over. Thinking it over. I'm thinking it over before, uh, before, uh, before impulsively deciding uh, I'll do something. It's a part of my uh, determination to see the habit. One of the habits of my mind is to uh, say yes to everything, which isn't bad. I mean, it probably goes along with I don't have too much bitterosity. I come from cheerful people, but but I'm. Uh, uh, and I used to say that my principal hindrance was um, fretting mind. But I'm not so sure it's my principal hindrance. I'm, I'm not so held hostage by it. I think I have more of a hindrance of um, lust and uh, in terms of lust for new experiences. If people, Somebody phones and says, uh, I'm organizing a the first mindfulness retreat on the moon, and I <laughs> wonder if you'd be interested in teaching that retreat. And my mind would be the kind of mind that'd say, the moon, I've never done that before. Wow, could do that. You know, there are things that, that I, I can't do at this age. So, so that's a little bit exaggerated, but uh, one of the things I often do is make too crowded of a schedule. So I've decided that my practice is thinking it over, which I, I do what I want to do in the end, but somebody says, do you want to do this? And I think, oh, there's another thing to do. Think, wait a minute, T-I-O, think it over, so make a decision. So maybe it's you become mature as you get old, but not everybody. <laughs> I, not, not, not mature, wise. Wise is not a bad word. I want to tell you why I think that, oh, we, we had that, everybody chose which one they would have. They're all, they're they're all they all they're all the same in a sense. Maybe maybe I'll start with the last one of those. Not born again into this world, just to say something, because it's at the end of the Metta Sutta, which you have over here, is not born again into this world. So I don't know about rebirth, in the sense of uh, lifetimes. I feel like, um, I don't know, I don't know. It hasn't been a thing that has resonated with me. Um, I don't come from a culture that 
has that as a cultural context. But I think that I am reborn into suffering every time I make a story that holds me hostage. I think every time I, I, get, mire, I get in a gloom and I get mired in the gloom and I stay unconscious about the gloom, then I am reborn into suffering. Every time I do not see myself fall into some inner litany about who did me wrong or what's going to go wrong, and I don't notice it and take care of myself, that I am born again into suffering. So I think I'm born into suffering. You know, we build stories in our mind. This is a... I I want to tell a story. It's a good story to tell at least once a year. Uh, I went to teach about the Buddha to uh, a class of sixth graders when... uh, my eldest grandson was a sixth grader, so that makes this is an old story. So for those of you who have heard it once or more than once, it's just the best story. <laughs> so Colin's class was studying the Buddha, and I went and I was determined uh, uh, not to look uh, uh, meditation, because I'm his grandmother, you know, and you want to look normal. So... <laughs> So I I made it as unwoo-woo as possible, and I talked about uh, I talked about how uh, helpful it was going to school to be mindful, to pay attention, to listen to what the teacher was saying, because then you wouldn't not pick up the homework and you wouldn't not notice the homework and you wouldn't forget the homework and you'd understand what the teacher was teaching. Lots of reasons to be mindful. I thought I was making a good point, and. Uh, some boy raised his hand and said, uh, in our textbook, in our book here about the Buddha uh, and India, it shows, uh, it says that uh, people meditate and they get special powers, they can read other people's minds. Is that true? <laughs> so I said, well, you know, uh, I think that sometimes it's true that people who meditate seem to have extraordinary abilities to read other people's minds. But really, what I'm really talking about is being able to pay attention every day when you come to school, back to the school, and it's going to be good for you and helpful as you do the work, et cetera, et cetera. And I continue on, and he puts up his hand again, and he says, you know, the picture in our textbook of a person uh, uh, lying on a bed of nails, uh, and another one about a person lying on hot coal, walking on hot coals uh, because they meditated. Is that true? So I said, well, you know, I, at least you, know, you saw the picture. I, I've heard that that's true, that some people, they meditate enough that their mind is so concentrated that they don't feel pain in the same way that most of us feel pain. So maybe they can lie on sharp points, or maybe they can walk on hot coals, but really it's about paying attention. (laughs) And I continue on, he raises his hand again, and he says, Colin said that you knew a woman who could walk through walls. Is that true? (laughs) So I said, well, actually it is. I do know a woman uh, she's a Bengali woman. She comes from Calcutta. She was my teacher's teacher, and uh, they brought her to the United States, and she 
toured around in the United States with them, and she visited the really different communities that she taught in. Uh, did you meet her? I said, I did meet her, and she actually stayed in my house once when they were in the Bay Area. I said, did you see her walk through any walls? <laughs> I said, well, I didn't, but she did. How do you know she did? I said, well, my, my teacher said that she did, so I believed them. So there's a little pause, and I started to teach again, and he said, how did she do it? <laughs> so I said, I don't know exactly how she did it, but what they said was that she concentrated so carefully that her molecules all separated into individual molecules, and then they individually passed through microscopic spaces in the wall, and they reconstituted on the other side. I look around, 26 people. They're all nodding their heads. Like, that seems reasonable to them. So then I continued to teach, and I continued. We did a little walking meditation. We did some guided movement, just like Pramani was doing with us. And I went home. I had a nice time. And two days later, I got an envelope in the mail with thank you notes, as sixth graders write thank you notes. Dear Sylvia, uh, I really thank you for coming. I enjoyed what you said. It was fun to meditate. Uh, one of them said, Dear Grandma, I like that you, you know, thank you for coming to my class. And uh, one of them said, uh, Dear Sylvia, all of those nice things, thank you for coming. He said, One thing, though, I've been thinking about that woman who concentrated so well that she could pass through the wall. What if, in the middle of passing through the wall, she became distracted? Would she get stuck in the wall forever? So it's a really it's worth telling once a year that story. That's a great story because she's right. I know people who they get stuck in a wall of anger and they they can't get out of it. Uh, they get stuck in a wall of envy and lament. I need to have that. I'm not getting it, but I need to have it, and then they suffer forever. Whenever we tell ourselves a story, I must have this, or I must get rid of this, the imperative in the mind that things be different from what they are. He shouldn't have said that about me. He did say it. Okay, finished. But the, the, we continue to build stories. When we continue to build stories in the mind, at least when I build stories in my mind, I suffer. And I think that we get stuck in walls of envy and grudge and revenge. Anger is arising in me. I'm in a rage. Speak to me of nothing but vengeance. That people have a whole life devoted to vengeance. It's terrible to be stuck in a wall. That's a good story, isn't it? That's a really good story. I, I could not have made that up. I could not. I don't make up any of them, but I really could not have made that up because it's a really good question. And I imagine, I think to myself, my grandson is 28 years old, so Robert, who asked all those questions, is 28 years old. And I bet somewhere Robert is doing something interesting with his life because he really followed up on the questions. <laughs> Wasn't just going to let it go. 
So I want to tell you something about this metta sutta. Ah, okay. The Buddha's words on um, kindness. I love it when it says the Buddha's words on impartial kindness. So when I read this the first time, I, I had a kind of a, well, I, I won't even tell you the uh, uh, editorial opinion of what I thought, but I thought it was. I, I thought it was. I thought it was. I read it and I thought, this thing reads like the Nike Edge. It, it, it reads like just do it, you know, just do it. And it's very hard to love all beings impartially, but it was an uninformed glibness of my mind. I thought to myself, he can't just say. Just do it. Un, uh, impartially wish well to all beings. May all beings be at ease. That's really such a key line of that. We could say, may all beings be at ease, that we have no restrictions in our own mind. We'd really be free. As I said, but he doesn't give instructions. Just says do it. But he does give instructions. Every word of this, every, every line of it is an instruction. So we read the. Uh, let's look at the very beginning of it. This is read it with me. We'll read thirteen lines together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Dang, stop. That's one third of it. When you read a textbook on what the Buddha taught, it's usually presented in terms of the Buddha's teachings are about the cultivation of uh, virtue, about the cultivation of the mind, and about the cultivation of uh, insight. And this is the piece of this that's about the cultivation of wisdom. If you think about that first part, is really talking about what kind of character people have. His Holiness... When when Sally said to me, "What did his holiness did his holiness say anything new?" I at the time said, "No, Sally. You know, his holiness didn't say anything new. It's just about listening to him and hearing his devotion and seeing how he is." But actually, when I thought about it, uh, uh, since that time, because it also makes sense that he didn't say anything new. But what I heard for the first time, really, in that conference now five or six years ago was really um, a shift in his message. I'm sure he's always believed this, but a shift in what he is actually um, putting in the forefront of his teachings, which is the non-parochial or trans-parochial aspect of his teaching. He said, he has been saying, it's not important to me that people be Buddhists, or it's not about Buddhism. He said, the main thing is that people are ethical, and he said, what I am interested in is not what religion you follow, or if you don't follow a religion, that you don't follow a religion. I'm not interested in people with or without a religion. What I am interested in is, are you ethical? And I really am, have been, I've heard him speak several times since five or six years ago, and I find that to be increasingly his message. And I'm thinking, 
first of all, I love it that he says that because I think fundamentally the two things about the presence, I think, in every spiritual lineage that has endured for years is built on some code of ethics and moral law because people live together in a community and they follow a certain religious doctrine and fundamental to all of them is a code of ethics or code of morality so that we can live in a civilized way with each other. Houston Smith, in uh, his book, The Religions, well, now The Religions of the World Religions, it used to be called The Religions of Man, now it's called World Religions, talks about the fact that all religions have uh, are, are built up around a code of ethical behavior that addresses itself to the ways in which people might uh, do something that doesn't uh, uh, that doesn't attend to lift up the community. He said, for instance, uh, one of the things is that people often admire something, will feel envy or jealousy. So every religion has a thing that says don't steal, don't take stuff that isn't yours. And it's not because they made that up out of thin air, it's because the mind uh, falls prey to lust sometimes, and the mind falls prey to anger sometimes and strikes out. So every practice has the things that you shouldn't do, which all are, references to noticing an impulse to do something that would cause harm to somebody else and limiting yourself to it. One of the images that I've carried now 30 or 40 years in my mind is an image from an old, old Margaret Mead teaching film uh, in which she has filmed young children in different uh, in different locations in the world, different rural locations, rural France, rural India, rural Japan, rural um, Canada. And in each case, film, there's interactions of children. And one of the children in each of these families have been chosen because they have at, at least two children and one of them between six months and a year. And in one particular film, the four-year-old boy in the company of um, his nine-month-old, say, sister or brother, uh, with his mother's back turned, the the baby has reached out and taken one of his toys. And you see this four-year-old boy pick up his hand, start to bring it down over the young toddler, and stop halfway down. His mother's over there, he's going, and then he stops. And his mother's back is turned. And his hand comes down like this, and stops right over the baby, and then it does like this, down. And I thought, oh, that's how it works, that we have this impulse to go, and if we're fortunate, by the time we're four years old, we've learned to do and stop and do that, do something else with it. That's what we're meant to do. We, If we have parents who love us and help us and guide us so that we pull ourselves together... Everybody, innate is a sense that there's a wrong thing to do or an, a, a hurtful thing to do. And there are kind things to do. And these first 13 sentences are all ways to behave yourself. Uh, um, they're, 
able, upright. I think the able means they're straightforward. I don't mean I don't think it has anything to do with ability, like we use able now. I think it means that they're you know they 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 present themselves straightforwardly. This is me. I love the one about uh, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Uh, I think, well, that's nice for a monk, you know. Okay, if you're a monk, you, but you know, first of all, monks are busy, and they have the business of teaching the community all the time. But I think that any one of us could take this and uh, uh, and translate any one of these lines. If I think about unburdened with duties, we think all of us probably have an agenda. We have in our phone a calendar. Go here, do this, pick up that, get the dry cleaner, do this, da 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 da, see the dentist. Uh, And I don't think it's about not having things to do or not even having things that you're meant to do by a certain time. I think not being burdened by them is what it means. I think it means having the right kind of mind, not not having anything to do or that you really need to do by a certain time, but not being troubled by it. A friend of mine, uh, uh, a Dharma teacher friend of mine that I'd met at a conference somewhere, sent me an email and he said, you know, I'm coming to the United States, surprisingly, uh, in two weeks and I'm going to be in Los Angeles and then I'm coming to San Francisco and I'm going to be there two and a half days and from here to here I wonder if you have uh, you know, time, we could get together and have a meal. And I wrote back and I said, you know, um, just those two and a half days, there actually isn't a single free moment. I said, I think I'm blowing my cover as a contemplative and he wrote back and he said, you realize, Sylvia, that contemplative has nothing to do with uh, how many things you have in your mind or in your schedule. It has nothing to do with how many things you have in your schedule. It has to do with the mind that meets them. I thought, that's really cool. First of all, it was very sweet of him to give me that space. I actually think that having told you the story about my lust for yet another experience, another experience, that now there's a, that's, a, that's a, <laughs> an example. If someone writes and says, two weeks from now, have you got a, <laughs> an hour in two and a half days? There's too many things. A little bit lust for experience. Yeah. <laughs> you are very dear, but <laughs> if there was a Dharma teacher going to the moon and it wasn't me, I'd probably feel bad. <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, uh, there's a list of things that uh, the Buddha said of uh, traits that disappear as people's minds get clearer. And the last of the uh, limiting traits that disappears on that list is uh, personal conceit, the personal ego. Uh, you know, but uh, I might be the first Dharma teacher. I might be the da da da. That to be to be able to say, you know, it matters how other people are, and I'll just even the thought. What will I say with my final words? That's also a conceit. I have to prepare the final words. 
but we should have a final word contest or something. <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> I don't want it to be fooey. Uh, that the war, war, lies, wise would later reprove wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. You know, this part that we just started to read is the middle part, the beginning part, is the cultivation of ethics. This middle part, starting with wishing, in gladness and in safety, I think there's all kinds of things that you can read into that. And one of the things that I would like to read into it, I don't know whether it's there intentionally, is that practicing those virtues of ethics, not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, allows you to wish in gladness and safety that um, impeccable behavior really is the source of contentment and the source of happiness and the source of ease. When people uh, recite uh, Buddhist precepts, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, from taking things that are not freely offered to me, from using my sexuality in ways that aren't appropriate or exploitive or abusive, from uh, speaking in ways that are exploitive or abusive, for uh, for intoxicants, by which I understand not only uh, intoxicating myself with substance, but intoxicating myself with too much cable television or too much... uh, too much cable television, too much gossiping, <laughs> too much telephoning. There's lots of ways to intoxicate the mind. If I say that, that it, there, there's a there, we sometimes do them together as a class, and we recite them together. We <laughs> recite them in Pali. Not that everybody speaks Pali, but we have transliterated. And there's another, there's one more line that comes after that when you're finished with them that says, may these precepts be the cause of happiness. That really, behaving yourself is the cause of happiness. I actually know that and so do you from your experience. Uh, when I'm at a meditation retreat, even when I sit down in the morning in my own house, if I sit a little bit, my my mind does a little housekeeping in it it thinks, all of a sudden, as I'm sitting, it thinks, oh, you forgot to phone so-and-so back. Or, oh, you know, yesterday when I spoke to so-and-so, I was a little peremptory in what I said. I shouldn't have said that just that way. Or, oh, when I was teaching, I shouldn't have said that just that way. And actually, I've become really uh, happy to notice that that's true. I don't think, oh. Because uh, my mind that says that to me, first of all, says it in a nice tone of voice because I actually am meditating and I feel a little bit more comfortable. And I think to my, it makes me feel reassured that my mind and my heart by itself has a moral inventory machine in it. And it feels bad if I do things that cause pain in some way. 
It's kind of like having a, um, and I don't think it's because I have a special mind and heart. I think that's true of everybody. Doesn't it happen to you when you suddenly think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I should. I spoke too fast. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't put that out. I wish I hadn't mentioned that in the meeting. I didn't have to do that. I wish I hadn't said it just that way. Even we don't think about it in the moment. But later on, we suddenly think, oh, should have thought more, thinking it over. And then, actually, when remembering it, saying, okay, next time I'll try a little harder. I am so um, uh, encouraged by the fact that it seems like human beings have a moral inventory machine built in. I think it happens with most of us. I think that what we see and what we, what we sometimes, I think, erroneously decide watching the TV or reading the newspapers is that everybody has run amok and everyone is terrible and everybody is prepared to do terrible things. I don't think so. I think we see some terrible things. But I think most people don't want to do terrible things. And most people don't feel good about terrible things getting done. I really think that's true. I think that's the imperative of the heart. You know, if you sit quietly, you don't have to say, now I will do a searching moral inventory, although that's a perfectly good practice for people who do it but to just sit down and your heart will do the moral inventory you know what I think it's like I think it's like a pool sweep you know you put the pool sweep in the pool and then you go away and it moseys around the pool here and there looking for stuff and when it finds something it grinds it up and goes off with it I think that if I sit down quietly and just breathe that the pool sweep of my heart goes around, rifles through the, the video of the last two days in my mind and says, you know, wish you hadn't said that. And So I think that really the precepts are the cause of happiness. There's less work for the, for the pool sweep to do. Let's just finish this particular middle part, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. Because when we feel all right, when our own heart is relaxed, that's what we actually wish. You look around in, a, in an airplane. If you ever take a long flight, or even you know, transcontinental is long, and we're all pushed in like that. If I go back to go to the toilet, or I come back to my seat, and you see all those people sitting there behaving themselves. Nobody is causing mayhem, and everybody feels like they're going to explode. Nobody's comfortable in there. It's so tight, and it's so long, and so really difficult to fly. On the other hand, it's amazing that we can get in an airplane and six hours later be getting off at JFK. That's really amazing. You think about people who came across country in covered wagons and took months, you know, and, and hail and storm and who knows what. We can do it in six hours, and it's uncomfortable. My friend, um, my friend uh, Joe Button, who was a, um, a flight attendant for United for more than 40 years when she retired. She was the number one on the flight attendant rotation. She flew for United for all those years. Nothing bad ever happened all those years. And I was teaching one day, and I said, you know, we have impressions about people. It's hard to find people about whom we don't have feelings, positive or negative, we feel right away a little bit positive or a little bit negative, just from who knows, the way they hold themselves, the way they walk, or the way they whatever. 
on retreats, people see that their mind gets crazy and it doesn't know people at all and makes up whole stories about them just from how they tie their shoes or eat or something. So I said something in class. I said, you know, there are no neutral people. And Joe said, yes, there are. She said, when I stand in front of a plane of people and I say, everybody fasten your seatbelt, she said, I mean everybody. And I really want everybody to get there safely. I don't want some people to get there more safely than other people. I want everybody to get there safely. And I think to myself, that's a really good teaching. We're all on this planet flying through space. And it'd be really nice if it, if the flight was safe. you know. That, and if you realize all these people flying on the same craft with me, could we take, keep each other safe, really? So from which you don't have to say, all right, I'll tell me those precepts again and I'll learn them and I'll really do it. We would do it naturally because we wouldn't exploit or abuse our kin and the people that we love the most so that everybody becomes our kin. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. That's so radical. Let none through anger or ill will Wish harm upon another. That's really radical. Because, first of all, it's painful to do it. It, I mean, it's just painful. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So sometimes when we have a lot of time, I say to people, what's the recollection that we should sustain? Because it doesn't, you know, it's not got such a clear antecedent in that sentence. One should sustain this recollection. I think what they're talking about, we should sustain the recollections, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease. It really means let's all disarm. Disarm is a good word, you know. I'm thinking we say disarm when we suddenly are surprised by something that's very touching about another person and our animosity goes about them, goes away. I was once in a group, um, who knows, 20 years ago now, I was in a group of people, of of teachers in Dharamsala who were in a meeting. This was a very great moment uh, that I got to go with 26 other teachers from around the world to Dharamsala and meet with the Dalai Lama. And for a couple of days, and talk about teaching in the West. And the night before um, we had our first audience, we were in a room meeting and having a preliminary workshop on how we should what, how we should conduct ourselves and what we should say and who would ask the questions. And I didn't know all the people who had uh, come. I I knew some of them, and I flew there with some of them, but. As we gathered in that space, I looked around and I saw that there were some people who I hadn't known that were going to be there that were there. And 
it was like, there were at least two, maybe three. Somebody came in, and I thought, ah, oh, that's really. I was disappointed to see they were not my favorite person. <laughs> and if I thought about it, and as I thought about it, they weren't my favorite person for such a small reason. Maybe three years before, at some conference, they had said something a little bit uncomplimentary about me. Who knows what? But that that but you know they were now filed in the in the filing system as people that you wouldn't mind not meeting. You know, that, so here they are in this meeting with me, and really with this extraordinary possibility. So we're sitting in this big circle, and my mind is thinking, "Oh, good, 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 ah, good, 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 good." good. Mm. That's what the mind does, you know. It looks around and sees who's there. So my friend Jack was uh, running that particular planning group, and he said, okay, now we're going to go around the room and we're going to say our names. And I thought he was going to say, we'd say where we're from and what we teach and uh, just somehow our vita as... um, as you would expect it, you know, Sylvia Boorstein, da 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 I teach this and that, since this and that. But he said, why don't we say our names and then say, what is the greatest spiritual challenge facing us in our lives and in our work right now? So I think, ah, he could have said, we'll just all get up and take off our clothes. It would have been less, <laughs> would have been less exposure than, you know... What's the greatest spiritual challenge that's facing us in our work and in our lives right now? I'll go first, he said, and we'll just go around the circle. Then I think, oh. So then it's not even you can volunteer to do it. Everybody's going to do it, and it's going to come around, and it's going to come up to you right over here. I don't even remember what I was thinking, but I remember that I was listening to people, and people were amazingly, disarmingly, which is why I thought of this story right now, they were disarmingly candid about the fact that nobody said, oh, I don't have any challenges. Nobody said that. The question is, what challenges do you have in your life and in your work right now? Everybody had, and everybody was saying them in their, you know, in their way, and this is what's done. And I noticed that I was touched that everybody had and everybody spoke up with candor about it. And I was touched, and people were so straightforward with it. And I realized, as it went around the circle, that I had been accidentally touched by my very person that I thought I that I had this big story about. Like I think, uh, but somebody says something, and it's so touching, you're disarmed by that. And then I think, ah, oh, but this was a story. But I I knew in the moment that it had erased the previous story. You know, the story just stays as long as you keep it there, making a wall. And as soon as something dislodges the story out of the wall, and I was so touched by the candor, I realized the story, the, you know, the feeling, ugh, stays there as long as you keep it there. And that if you don't want it there, you have to work on taking out all those stories or finding something else, a story that's going to erase that story. The story that really erases all the stories is everybody is just the way they are. And they do just what they do because that's what happens then. And really to make a story about who's the bad guy and the good guy and the villains and the victims, we are all stumbling around, really. 
like billiard balls kind of bouncing off each other. And if there's some direction, spin on the ball that we could do, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. One should sustain this recollection. All of that is the instructions for how to do it. It's not the Nike ad that says just do it. It says this is how to do it. When you have that kind of a thought, you say, whoa, I just had that thought. And said, so, you know, this ignoble thought arose. Let me see what I can do to address. I don't have to think to myself, this person really is a wonderful person. Maybe they're not such a wonderful person. But I could certainly think a kind thought for myself. Oh, sweetheart, look how disturbed you got when you just thought about that. Take it easy. That's all right. You can take care of yourself. There's some sweet response. Not that great, but I'm worth taking care of. And then I'll make space in my mind for everyone to be there. And I will be better off and the world will be better off from it. This is said to be the sublime abiding. This last part, the beginning is ethical development, the middle part is the functional. How do you actually work to change the habits of your mind so that you don't wish ill? And the end of it is what happens if you do that. So this is really about, this is the formula for liberation. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. I'd like to translate the next line as um, being freed from addiction to sense desires. I think this is a bad, uh, uh, not bad, an unskillful translation from the Pali. I think it means addicted to sense desires. We have sense desires all of our life being freed from the addiction to sense desires, is not born again into suffering. Because there's always a way out of suffering. In this moment, we could stay awake and uh, look around. Krishnamurti used to say, you really don't need to meditate. You just look around. And you see how it is in the world, and you move by it. I think actually I need to meditate. Krishnamurti saw it more than I could see. So I think meditation is good for you, and I think calming down the mind is good for you. But I think calming it down to be able to see. We only have ten more minutes. We could sit, or I could tell you one more story that would take up part of that ten minutes. It was in Santa Barbara that I was I was in Santa Barbara and at a conference and I was needing to go back to the airport again early in the morning and uh, the driver of the airport van came to pick up the people who were leaving the conference center. It was dark and it was also foggy and we had to go from Santa Barbara to LAX. So it was a, a long drive. And I sat in the front with uh, the van driver. I recognized him from three days previously when I had come down. And I'd been alone with him in the van, and we'd talked about his life. 
so I sat up in front because I like to sit up in the front of those with with the driver. It's a, more comfortable for me. And everybody else is in the back, and we take off. And we're riding along, and it's dark and it's foggy out, and everybody soon falls asleep in the back. I look in the back, and everybody's you know that look of sleeping, rolling along in a car, and. Um, so we ride for a little while, and the driver, whose name is Mohammed, says uh, suddenly, he said, um, do you suppose that your friends in the back would mind uh, if I pulled off in a uh, uh, in a rest stop to get some coffee? There's a Wendy's somewhere. I said, no, 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 my friends will not mind. They'll like it if you stop. He said, I need some coffee. I'm sleepy. So I said, no, no, they'll be happy that you made that decision. Please do it. Matter of fact, in that moment, I woke up, and I, you know, I, he's, I said, "Do you want me to drive?" And he said, <laughs> "He said, no, I'm all right to drive." But meantime, I'm now alert, and I face myself to him, and I figure I'm going to engage him in a conversation, so to keep him alert. So I had driven down with him uh, a few days before because. And with nobody, and we had talked about all the things. I knew his name was Mohammed. I know he'd. He, I knew he'd come from. Uh, he'd come from India a few years previously, uh, and that he'd come with his cousin to Los Angeles. They had another cousin there. He was going to find work. He was going to bring his family. He was still unable to bring his family. He and the cousin had tried to open a restaurant. The restaurant had not worked out. He was still trying to figure out how to bring his family. So I knew all those questions. We talked a lot about that. I couldn't go over that again. Thinking about how to have a conversation with him, keep him awake. I say, uh, Mohammed, uh, you're a Muslim, aren't you? And he said, yes, I am. So I know limited about Islam, but I knew enough to say, oh, so, okay, tell me, uh, do you pray every day? He said, yes, I do. I said, okay, how many times a day do you pray? He said, I pray five times a day. I said, okay. I say, what do you say when you pray? And he said, well, he said, uh, he's about to tell me. Then he said, well, wait a minute, it's not in English. I said, well, it's all right, just tell me what it is that you say. Just, I'll listen, just do it. So he says some prayer for a while. Then he said, um, okay, that's it. So I said, well, when you pray, do you pray long or short? He said, uh, it doesn't matter, he said, if you pray long or short. He said, uh, it matters if you pray from your heart. He said, some people, they could stand all day and pray, but then not really praying from their heart. So I say, well, Muhammad, how do you arrange it so that you pray from your heart. <coughs> he said, well, he said, you know, you look around at everybody, and he like makes a sweeping gesture out the, the front of the van, and it's a gesture really at the fog out there, because there was nothing, and it was just pre-dawn light coming up in fog. He said, you look around at you every day, you look around in the street, and you look at everybody there around you, and it's all like we've been thrown into the middle of an ocean and nobody knows how to swim. He said, when you look around and you see everybody like that, he said, it gets you. And then you pray from the heart. So, 
I think it's an important story because I think that at some point when we realize that everybody is in here, we're all in this ocean called this life, and nobody knows how to swim. We're all sort of wallowing around trying to, uh, you know, hug on to what's safe for us and not knowing when the next wave is going to come. But that's how it is for everybody. And when we realize we are in the same aircraft with everybody, we're in the same ocean as everybody, you realize that, you look at everybody, and you realize we're all in the same boat, and your heart opens, and you pray from your heart, which means, in my thinking, that we just hold everybody with kindness. May all beings be at ease. May all beings swim. We have four minutes. I would like you to turn to a neighbor of yours or two neighbors and say, with what blessing would you like me to bless you? I would if I was sitting next to somebody. I'd say, I just, uh, I bless you on me to have good health and clarity about uh, what you do uh, for this next year and that you should be well and your family should be well. And I'd say, okay, what do you want me to bless you with? And then I would bless them. So, ready, set, go. I want three or four minutes of mutual blessing. Okay, so here it is. We are at, we are at, no, no, hold that blessing in mid-bless, okay? We can finish it in a minute. Because it's four o'clock, I need to say, thank you for coming. Uh, may we all, may this whole world have a world of turning towards peace and kindness and gentleness. And may we here be a cause in our lives of spreading the truth that peace is possible in everything that we do. May we all thrive. May we all spread the truth. May we all be beacons of light. May we all take care of each other and everybody else. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. Sometimes. Sometimes. I'm, I, what I surely do is I say to myself, let's try not to do that again. <laughs> there you go. When you drive out of here, be very careful not to cut short that going to the corner and turning at the corner. <laughs> and now it's uh, the end of January 1st, so... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.